Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of February 23rd, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Leaving Big Shoes to Fill, Mines Men's Basketball edges out Chadron State, 78-74 on Senior Night, by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Golden Planning on 4th of July Fireworks, City Council wants to explore alternatives for future years, by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. City of Arvada Resident Survey shows general satisfaction, concern of public safety. 71% of respondents rate the quality of life in Arvada as good, by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Arvada Chef wins Food Network's Chopped. Oscar Padilla brings South American open flame cooking heritage to the national stage, by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Flavors of Casa Bonita fill next gallery and annual art show. Catch the Casa Bonita-themed works of art until March 6th by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Lakewood hosts tree sale to increase canopy and help save its urban forest by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. Flavors of Casa Bonita fill next gallery in annual art show. Catch the Casa Bonita theme works of art until March 6th by Andrew Fraley. What could be better than dripping sopapillas from Casa Bonita? A statue of dripping sopapillas from Casa Bonita. This statue and many more Casa Bonita themed works of art can be found at Next Gallery in Lakewood, in the same plaza as the famous Pink Towered Restaurant, as it hosts a Casa Bonita art show. Artists from down Colfax Avenue all the way to Georgia have submitted entries for the show, which runs until March 6th. It's always had sort of a quirky reputation, said Betsy Dollaby Rudolph, a resident artist and organizer of the show since its start. She explained that since Next Gallery was priced out of its previous space in 2017 and moved to Lakewood, it's been hosting the Casa Bonita Art Show. We needed to sort of get our name out, let the neighborhood know we were there, Rudolph said, and also let the neighborhood know we were approachable and not like a fancy-pants art gallery. So creating a whole show on the quirky restaurant next door was her idea to do that. It was a great way to attract people who had never been part of an art show, she said, attracting new and working artists as well. Ever since the people still want it, and I I see people through the summer already thinking about their Casa Bonita piece. Nowadays, the show is mostly known by word of mouth and tradition, but when Casa Bonita closed during the pandemic, Rudolph said the gallery was worried the show might die as well. 
The gallery pushed through, and now with a renewed buzz due to South Park's Trey Parker and Matt Stone renovating the restaurant to open again, the art show has renewed energy as well. Next gallery is open 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Fridays and noon to 5 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. Lakewood hosts tree sale to increase city canopy and help save its urban forest by Andrew Fraley. Landscaping is not on the top of the list of importance in low-income families and neighborhoods barely paying the bills. But Lakewood is trying to change that by making trees more affordable. This isn't purely for the looks of a nice front yard, however. Lakewood needs more trees for its urban forest to survive. According to Lakewood Forestry Supervisor Luke Killeran, who is in charge of almost 8,000 acres of Lakewood trees, the goal is to increase canopy cover over of the young city. The increased cover will lower surface temperatures and heat, but also improve air quality, stormwater reduction, and carbon sequestration. The biggest pressure to increase the canopy, though, according to Kellerin, is the, Ilmerin, the emerald ash borer. A foreign bug introduced to the U.S. decades ago, the emerald ash borer, eats ash trees which make up almost a quarter of all trees in Lakewood. They were found in Arvada only last year. It will destroy it, and it will kill every single ash tree in our community, Kellerin warned. With over 600,000 trees in Lakewood, 150,000 trees are at risk, the death of which would, quote, be a pretty big void in our tree canopy, he said. The plan is to plant as many diverse trees as the city can to mitigate the risk. Thanks to an assessment the city did of its trees last year, Killerin said 16% of the city is covered by canopy, which is good, he added, pointing out Colorado Springs is at about 17% and Grand Junction at 11%. The total possible planting area is 41%, and this gap is where the tree sale comes in. We really need residents to participate in this program because there's more opportunity for private property than public to grow trees, Killerin explained. For a city of about 30,000 acres, the 8,000 acres he can plant throughout the city is not even a third of that. The program is targeting neighborhoods that don't have a lot of finances to spend on landscaping, since landscaping is one of the lower priorities when it comes to lower-income neighborhoods. They don't have money to spend on trees, he said. We want it to be fair for everyone, equal opportunities for everyone to participate. These are smaller teenage trees as well, selling for only 25 bucks. You could come pick this tree up in your Prius. You could put this in your little two-door Honda Civic and you could get it home, Killerin said. But he stresses that this is a long-term process. From 2011 to 2019, the assessment saw a 2% increase in canopy coverage. That's good. It's a positive change, but we're going in the right direction. But it's pretty slow, Killerin said. If we're talking like a 1% canopy increase every four to five years, we're not going to see an immediate forest from today to tomorrow. Even if all 200 trees on sale were planted today, quote, 
I wouldn't expect them to even make an impact on our assessment for at least probably 15 or 20 years. With that in mind, he doesn't see Lakewood's sustainability plan from 2015 that hopes to achieve a 30% canopy coverage by 2025 to be realistic. It's embarrassing to hear that because I feel like a pessimist saying it's not happening, he said, explaining that between the subpar soil, little rain and ample heat, it's a stressful environment for trees and they can easily fail. It'll take at least 15 years to get to 20% canopy coverage, but quote, if we had 200 residents who cared about trees and green space and participated, I think it would be a great success rate, he said. As the saying goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Arvada Chef wins Food Network's Chopped. Oscar Padilla brings South American open flame cooking heritage to the national stage by Riley Dunn. When Oscar Padilla, chef and founder of Arvada's Gaucho Padilla Cowboy Barbecue, translated, won the February 7th episode of the popular Food Network cooking competition Chopped, he knew exactly what he would do with the $10,000 prize money. Give it to his wife. My wife at some point, she put on hold her career, Padilla said. She sacrificed her dreams to bring me support and help with my dreams and my career. It's time to pay it back. I want to bring that opportunity to her equal to the opportunity she's brought to me. It's so important to me that she continues learning and growing in her career. Padilla was born in Los Angeles and has Mexican heritage, which he says inspires his cooking. He and his wife have two children, and the wood-fire chef has made a name for himself in the Colorado culinary scene through gigs at Toro and Hotel Clio. He opened Gaucho Padilla last month at Freedom Street Social in West Arvada to rave reviews. The restaurant is a spin-off of his wood-fire catering business, Afuego. Padilla's experience working with a variety of meats and open flames helped him greatly on Chopped, the theme of which for this his episode was pig candy. Padilla said that he's been approached to appear on Chopped before, but scheduling issues made an appearance unfeasible. He let the Arvada press into a little production secret. The chefs who are invited to appear are often given the opinion between multiple episode themes. Padilla's episode was filmed in New York in October. When they contacted me, I'm so proud to receive that invitation, Padilla said. They offered me the opportunity to participate in two different episodes. That one, I feel, is better for me right now because I'm an expert in open fire. Wood fire is my heritage from my family. It's the cuisine I want to do. Playing and working with fire is my passion. Padilla's passion carried him through the first two rounds of a competition where he skillfully made an appetizer and an entree from a limited basket of ingredients, wowing the celebrity guest judges both times. The third and final challenge of the episode, the dessert challenge, was uniquely difficult for Padilla, who says he prefers to eat sweets than make them. He says he was planning on making churros or a donut, but that plan fell apart when the basket he was given contained pre-made donuts. 
Improvising on the spots, Padilla explained in a frustrated confessional, I'm not a pastry chef, I'm a wood fire chef. The momentary discouragement did not go to his head, however. Padilla got to work deconstructing the donuts and fashioning them into banuelos, a Latin American fried dough fritter. I love desserts. I'm amazing with dessert, eating, not making or prepping, Padilla said. Sweetness and desserts. I have a lot of respect for pastry chefs. It's a challenge for me. It's a lot of technique, cake, ganache, to work with chocolate, to work with sugar or caramels. I prefer the fire, the meat, the steam. That is my art. That's why I'm not touching a lot of the sweetness. Despite the curveball, Padilla's banuelos won over the judges. He won the competition handily and accepted the prize money in an emotional scene while holding one of his daughter's stuffed animals, a pig named Poncho, naturally. I feel like my family will be so proud of me, Padilla said as credits rolled. Thank you, Poncho. Poncho now has a home at Gaucho Padilla in a miniature pig pen next to a chalkboard celebrating Padilla's chopped win. The last 48 hours have been crazy, Padilla said after his episode aired. Everybody's seen you on TV. I'm so excited and so impressed about the reaction of the people. In addition to supporting his family, Padilla wants to share the cuisine of his culture with Coloradans across the state, which he says has given himself and his family an amazing life. One of my priorities is celebrating wood fire, the tradition of Latin America, or why not, North America with the traditional barbecue, Padilla said. Whatever people want with wood fire or smoke, it's awesome. Bringing cuisine from Mexico, from Latin America, that is my heritage. Padilla continued that that is why he wants to share it with everybody. Latin American cuisine, I feel, is a beautiful world of opportunities to share with Colorado, he said. Gaucho Padilla is part of Freedom Street Social, located at 15177 Candelas Parkway in Arvada. City of Arvada Residence Survey shows general satisfaction, concern of public safety. 71% of respondents rate the quality of life in Arvada as good, by Riley Dunn. Most Arvadans rate the quality of life in Arvada as good in a survey conducted from October 1st, 2022 to November 2nd, 2022. They gauge feedback from 1,200 residents on a variety of issues, including housing, public safety, city government, and use of tax dollars. The city of Arvada shared the results during a February 13th workshop. The city has conducted biannual resident surveys on odd years since 1997, with the exception of 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is why this year's survey took place on an even year. The survey was conducted by Probloski Research, a market research firm based in California. This year's survey was the first that was sent to all residents over the internet, social media, through mailers, phone calls, and the city's website. The survey took about 20 minutes to complete and was offered in English and Spanish, though only 2% of respondents answered in Spanish. 
The survey found that 71.2% of Arvadans rate the quality of life in the city as good, while 24.1% rate their quality of life as fair, and 4.6% rate their quality of life as poor. When asked how Arvada compared to other cities and towns, people answered roughly along the same lines, with 70.5% rating Arvada as good, 23% rating it as fair, and 5% rating it as poor, compared to other municipalities. Public safety and homelessness are at the top of residents' concerns across multiple categories. 20.8% of respondents said public safety, drugs, and crime are their top concerns, while 18.2% said homelessness was their most pressing worry. When asked to select which issues were most concerning, 67.4% said homelessness, 64.2% said crime in general, and 64.2% said the conditions of roads, streets, and sidewalks were also a concern. Latino residents and those with an annual household income lower than $35,000 rank the availability of affordable housing as more pressing than other residents. In terms of economic stability, 31.9% of respondents reported difficulty paying utility bills. 28.7% reported difficulty affording food. 21.5% reported difficulty paying for basic household needs. And 18.5% said they have trouble paying rent or their mortgage. 46.7% of respondents did not report experiencing economic instability in these areas. In terms of setbacks from the COVID-19 pandemic, 37.1% of respondents said general mental health has been the primary issue for themselves or their families. 68.8% of residents said they are satisfied with the services provided by the city, while 24.9% said they are not. Residents who have lived in Arvada for five years or less are more satisfied with the city's services than long-term residents. Similarly, 53.7% said they are satisfied with Arvada's use of their tax dollars, while 39.2% said they are not. Residents over 65 tend to be more satisfied with how their tax dollars are being spent, survey results showed. Growth and development seem to be at a significant area of dissatisfaction, with 51.1% of residents saying they are unsatisfied with how the city manages growth and development. Residents over 40 and those who live in District 4 tend to be more unhappy about growth and development than other demographics. More information can be found on the City of Arvada's website. Leaving big shoes to fill. Mines, men's basketball edges out Chadron State 78-74 to on senior night. By Corinne Westman. Senior guard Brendan Sullivan chose his moment well. Fighting back from a 21-14 first-half deficit against Chadron State, the fifth-year Colorado School of Mines player squared up in the paint and let it fly. As the net swished, the surrounding senior night crowd cheered. Over the next few plays, Sullivan scored two more baskets and had one more block, helping Colorado School of Mines take a 27-26 lead over Chadron State. 
The Ordiggers went into halftime with a six-point lead. Despite several ties and lead changes in the second half, ultimately edged out the Eagles 78-74 on February 18th. Sullivan scored 24 points on 9 out of 13 shooting, including three trays out of five. He also racked up two rebounds, three assists, and three blocks on senior night. It means so much to be able to show out for senior night, Sullivan said. Sometimes you get in a rhythm, and wherever you get in an open shot, you got to let it fly. It's just one of those nights where I felt like I had that rhythm. Mines, now 22-4 and overall and 16-4 and in conference play, celebrated three fifth-year seniors. Sullivan, Ben Boone, Trent Dykema, and transfer Adam Thistlewood on February 18th. All four started the game and helped lead the ore diggers to victory. Thistlewood, who tallied 19 points the night before against Colorado Christian, had 8 points on 4-5 shooting and 3 assists versus Shadron. Daikima collected 4 rebounds and had 2 assists. Boone had good looks early, scoring back-to-back jumpers in the paint and made critical free throws at the end. Boone believed Senior Knight always has weird energy because of the pre-game celebrations, saying you either play really, really well or you play awful at the beginning. For the ore diggers, it was the latter. The Eagles took and held on to their lead through most of the first half. The ore diggers only managed to close the gap and take a lead of their own in the last six minutes. Throughout the whole game, Mines and Chadron forced five ties and seven lead changes. The second half especially turned into a battle. Mines had an eight-point lead with two minutes and 26 seconds left, but Shadron got three consecutive buckets and cuts, cut Mines' lead to two with one minute ten left. Mines ate up some clock, but senior guard Sam Beskin's three-point attempt was off. Shadron recovered, but Bryce Latimer missed his jumper at the other end. Boone nabbed the rebound, forcing Shadron to play the foul game. The Eagles had a low foul count, though, so it took several inbound attempts before they made it into the bonus. It did eat some critical seconds off the clock, though. Mines coach Pryor Orser noted later how the ore diggers' eventual free throws helped seal the W. We knew it was going to be a really hard game, Orser said. They've got shooters, and they got guys who can beat you off the dribble. Orser described how incredibly proud he was of the four seniors for their academic and athletic accomplishments. They've had amazing basketball careers and built up what the Ordigers call a huge bank account, he said, with more than 100 wins and multiple NCAA tournament appearances. What's really going to hurt is when I'm sitting on the bench next year, and those guys aren't on the floor, Orser continued. They have an unbelievable legacy. For the younger players coming up, there's big shoes to fill. On the horizon, the Ore Diggers are preparing to close out the regular season at Adams State February 24th and at top-ranked Fort Lewis February 25th. After that, they'll likely host a first-round RMAC tournament game. If they make waves in the conference tourney, Boone hoped Mines could host a first-round NCAA tournament game. The Ore Diggers are in the NCAA tournament mix, Orser said, but it's too early to tell what seed they'll get or where they'll play. 
For now, the seniors were thankful to close out their final season at Mines together. Boone's loved all five of his years at Mines, and Sullivan added how he, Boone, and Daikima have grown close from living in the dorms and playing basketball together. Then, this year, they welcomed Thistlewood, whom Sullivan had known since they were children. It's a fun group, Sullivan said of his fellow seniors, and I'm excited to finish the season out with them. I've had a great five years here. Being able to close it out with a senior night win is just awesome. Golden planning on 4th of July fireworks. City Council wants to explore alternatives for future years. By Corinne Westman. Depending on fire safety conditions, Golden's annual 4th of July fireworks display could return this year. The city plans to sign a $40,000 contract, which was already included in the 2023 budget. Officials clarified that if Golden can't do its fireworks display on Independence Day, it can opt for another time later in the year. However, city council members said they wanted to get community feedback on whether to discontinue the fireworks display in 2024 and beyond. Councilors were concerned about continually investing money in displays that get canceled or postponed because of summertime fire dangers. The city didn't sign a contract last year, citing drought conditions and the Marshall Fire as concerns. During the February 14th City Council meeting, City Manager Scott Vargo asked for councilors and put on whether to go ahead with a contract this year. If not, he said the city could use the budgeted money toward other aspects of the holiday instead. He'd hoped he'd have more time to discuss either option with City Council first. But staff realized Golden needed to sign a contract by mid-February or lose its place in line, Vargo stated. Most of the councilors favored keeping the fireworks for 2023, but almost all of them were open to doing something else in 2024 and beyond. Mayor Laura Weinberg and Councilor Bill Fisher were against signing a contract this year, with Fisher commenting how worsening drought conditions make fireworks displays an uncertainty even in December. Councilors Paul Hazeman and Robert Reed favored signing a contract for 2023, saying the city didn't have time to do public outreach on whether to cancel the fireworks again this year. Councilor J.J. Trout was initially ambivalent, but ultimately decided to give her thumbs up to signing a contract. She said she grew up watching 4th of July displays and generally enjoys fireworks. I don't want to be the person that says no fireworks, she continued. Reed recalled seeing the 1976 Bicentennial fireworks on the National Mall, saying that displays like that mean a lot to him and others. The city has explored something like drone shows instead, but Councillor Don Cameron said it had cost $90,000 for a 10-minute display, which didn't seem worthwhile. Both Cameron and Councillor Casey Brown mentioned how their dogs fear fireworks, but both also wanted to go forward with this year's display. They were also open to doing another, other family-friendly activities in future years, such as Children's Bicycle Parade or supporting the Lions Club event. Lakewood City Council pushes short-term rental ordinance approval another month. Significant amendments were passed. More time is needed 
to fix legal details by Andrew Fraley. A short-term rental ordinance has been in the works in Lakewood since 2021, which would allow Airbnb-type rentals in the city. A final vote was planned for February 13th, but multiple changes were made by the council, causing it to need to be revisited on March 13th. The ordinance defines a short-term rental, or STR, as being a stay of 29 days or fewer. It would require property owners to have a license for the STR, limited to one, and give notice to abutting properties that they were acquiring the license, among other technicalities, such as proof-of-safety inspections. The most deliberated change of multiple by the council was the previous requirement that the STR had to be operated out of the primary residence of the property owner, which would have restricted the ability of non-residents from investing in STRs in the city. We've moved from the large concern that the constituents had of reducing the amount of available properties for ownership for folks who live and work in the community. Councilmember Bob Barb Franks said in response to Charese's motion to remove the primary residence requirement. This would open it up to investors. Charese's motion, which passed additionally, would functionally allow two STRs for one owner, as their primary residence would also be allowed to be used as a partial STR. Councilmember Sofia Mayot Guerrero who also supported the motion, thought the primary residence aspect would be a sticking point. Quote, trying to figure out the innovative solutions that put reasonable regulations and boundaries around this program without putting undue burden on capitalism. A previous requirement to have a parking plan for the STR was removed as well. An requirement of mandatory mediation with community members harmed by STR activities was striked out but still to be discussed. The ordinance will be revisited on March 13th. How much money is being spent by chair candidates? We will never know. By Sandra Fish, the Colorado Sun. How much money are the candidates to lead the Colorado GOP and Colorado Democratic Party raising and spending? We don't know, and we won't find out. That's because there's no state law or party bylaw that requires candidates for state party chair to report their fundraising and spending, though there are campaign finance disclosure rules for people who run for city council, legislature, and Congress. The candidates are spending money, however, and some are asking others to donate. Several of the contenders have websites, are traveling across the state to visit with local party leaders and activists, and are trying to persuade party central, central committee members to support their campaigns through texts, robocalls, and emails. Democratic Chairwoman Morgan Carroll and Republican Chairwoman Christy Burton-Brown are both stepping aside in the coming weeks, and there are multiple candidates to replace both of them. Whoever wins the contest, Democrats will select their new state chair April 1st, while the GOP will select its new leader March 11th, will have a big influence over the future direction of their respective parties. They may also be paid tens of thousands a year for their work. Carol, 
estimated she spent $5,000 on a website and travel costs in her first campaign to be party chair in 2015. She was paid about $73,000 in 2022. Burton Brown said she spent about $2,000 of her own money when she ran for the job two years ago, while her opponent, former Secretary of State Scott Gessler, told The Sun he spent less than $25,000 with, quote, a substantial number of supporters who contributed. Burton Brown was paid about $72,000 in 2022. This year, Tim Kubik, a party volunteer and education consultant who lives in Larimer County, aims to raise $25,000 to fund his campaign for Democratic Party chair, according to an email obtained by The Sun. A robocall delivered a similar message to prospective donors. Kubik said he's spending on campaign consultants and media, raising donations that are averaging $100. Since all of my donors are family, friends, or volunteer supporters, I'd prefer not to disclose their names, as many have donated expecting anonymity under current state law, he said in an email. Current First Vice Chairman Howard Chu is also raising money on his website, but said, quote, it's not a lot. He hopes to print flyers and send mailers to Central Committee members. Casper Stockham said one of the GOP other candidates tweeted Monday that the contest, quote, is between we the people and big money. He's seeking donations on his website. So is Eric Adland, who is running for state party chair after losing his 7th congressional district bid in November. Aaron Wood, a Highland Ranch activist, isn't asking for donations on his website as part of his chair bid. Stephen Varela, of Pueblo doesn't have a website for his GOP chair campaign. One state party chair candidate who said he isn't raising money is Shad Morib, a Democrat who has worked for U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper and Governor Jared Polis. He said he wasn't comfortable asking people for money that would go into his bank account with no disclosure of how it's used. He is, however, allowing a friend to create bandanas for his effort. We're definitely putting miles on the truck like never before, said Murrup, whose wife is a former state senator, Carrie Donovan, a veiled Democrat. Murrup said he'd support an effort to change state law to require reporting of donations and expenditures of candidates for state party chair. Kubik said he wouldn't oppose requiring such disclosure, while Chu said he didn't think campaign finance reporting is needed for state party chair contests. It's a private election, Chow said. It's like running for a union president or Elks Lodge president. Gessler and Burton Brown also said they wouldn't support requiring candidates for state party chair to report how much money they raise and spend. It's not an election you can buy, Burton Brown said in a text message. It's a very relationship and issue-based race. End quote. Both parties are slated to finish electing county-level officers on Wednesday, with congressional and multi-county legislative district officers elected in coming weeks. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media.
Local voices. Soaring utility bills provoke questions about energy future. Big Pivots by Alan Best. Colorado has had a chilly winter compared to recent decades, but the larger question triggered by the raising, rising utility bills is how the state's 5.8 million residents will stay warm in coming decades. I see this mo story as being mostly about the future of natural gas. Utility bills from November and December that in many cases were double those of previous years have outraged many Coloradans. Much of the heat was vented at Excel Energy, the state's largest utility with 1.4 million gas customers and 1.5 million electric customers. Black Hills Energy, Energy has 192,000 customers and Atmos has 120,000 customers. Other residents are served by municipal utilities or, particularly in rural areas, burn propane. Natural gas explained 80% of the increase of an average utility bill, according to research by the Colorado Public Utilities Commission staff. Gas prices surged, caused largely by supply disruptions caused by Russia's war against Ukraine. Prices have now moderated, but were responsible for 34% of bill increases. Uncommon cold explained another 30%, according to the PUC staff research. For example... Temperatures at Denver Central Park averaged 8 degrees colder than the prior year, which, by the way, was the second warmest since record-keeping began in the 1930s. The station was then called Stapleton Airport. Russ Schumacher, the Colorado climatologist, says heating degrees days. A measure of the energy needed to heat buildings rose 30% at Central Park. Excel said its customers in Colorado used 35.5% more gas in November and 31% more in December than in the same months in 2021. It was the coldest winter in Denver in more than 20 years. Some customers also started paying for winter storm Uri in February 2021, the week-long deep freeze, whose utilities had insufficiently hedged their contracts. They paid through the nose, and those costs are now being passed along to customers. This financial pain was evident this week at the State House when Governor Jared Polis introduced several consumers. One woman said her family had commonly gone to the mountains on Saturdays, but could not now because her husband was working Saturdays to pay for higher utility bills. Others talked of lowering thermostats, but were still being shocked by their bills. For Excel, the high bills were being paid just as company officials informed shareholders that Colorado had delivered profits of 8.23% in 2022. It's not so exorbitant. Utilities commonly do as well or better. In the compact with states, they get monopolies, score high on reliability, and never take a loss. But this had produced calls for Excel and other utilities to get more, quote, skin in the game. Adding outrage was news that the PUC had al allowed Excel to pass along $2 million it had paid to lawyers and expert witnesses in supporting its argument for raised consumer rates. This equals the entire annual budget for the Office of Utility Consumer Advocate, a state agency of seven people 
charged with representing consumers in cases before the PUC. Passing along such costs has occurred for decades or longer. Despite precedent, it's a valid question to ask whether an imbalance exists. Polis and his remarks at the Capitol seem to agree. In the short term, we can expect legislation that will require Excel and other utilities to hedge in the natural gas markets. Think of this as being like insurance with an upfront cost that prevents big, big bills. The broad question is whether we should, as Polis suggested, shift energy use to renewables that in theory will not be vulnerable to global price swings. One bill got preliminary nod by a House committee this week would require home warranty service contracts to allow homeowners to replace gas fueled devices with those powered by electricity. There's also been pushback to this drive to electrification that one legislator from southeastern Colorado dismissed as consisting of, quote, rainbows and unicorns. That remark came during a discussion of a bill that proposed to prevent local jurisdictions from banning combustion of fossil fuels. Colorado has a sole precedent for such bans. Crested Butte last summer passed a law preventing use of natural gas in the remaining 100-some lots in that town to be developed. Alan Best writes about Colorado's energy and water transitions at the reader-supported e-journal Big Pivots. See more at bigpivots.com. PUC responds to Polis' call for utility relief. Searching for Answers by Joshua Perry, The Colorado Sun. Colorado's Public Utilities Commission on February 8th discussed addressing bill price hikes in response to Governor Jared, Jared Polis' utility cost reduction directive. But it isn't clear what the first steps will be. Chairman Eric Blank said that the PUC has been tasked with a wide range of objectives to ease an affordability crisis that made consumers' utility bills 52% higher on average in December. Some consumers saw their bills double or even triple. Quotes, among other things, the governor has asked us to identify ways to support cons customers in the most dire circumstances, improve access to and the capacity of the bill assistance program, find ways to incentivize utilities to reduce customer costs, analyze approaching for approaches for limiting bill spikes, and to expand public engagement on these issues before the end PUC, he said. Blank didn't said he didn't know how the PUC would take action on this directive right now, but they would continue addressing affordability in the coming weeks. One way the PUC can make progress is driving down base rates, Commissioner Megan Gilman said. Under the current rules, a utility seeking to add new infrastructure, such as transmission lines or a power plant, must first convince PUC regulators that it is necessary. If PUC agrees, it issues a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity to approve the request. Once the project is in operation, the cost of the investment is passed on to consumers through an increase in base utility rates. PUC also has the power to set a return on investment rate, which determines the profit that utility companies get from these investments. 
That ROI rate can contribute to higher prices as well. Base rates have been increasing for years. Higher base rates make periods of extreme price pressure usually resulting from high fuel costs or unusually cold weather conditions even worse. The PUC can't control those factors, but they can drive base rates down in the long run by limiting unnecessary investments by utility companies, Gilman said. What are we doing to really try to ensure that ratepayers are protected in the long run and ensure that those utility investments that end up being repaid by ratepayers are really the best use of that money and the best option available, she said. Blank said that managing base rates will be part of the discussion on affordability moving forward. Later at the meeting, the commission also approved updates to its policy for service disconnection reporting which now will include data on areas with the highest proportions of disconnections in order to identify geographic disparities in access to utility services. Additionally, they made plans to meet with assistance program coordinators and utility companies to improve the effectiveness and accessibility of low-income qualified programs. Access to sources of assistance, like the Percentage of Income Payment Program, which limits utility costs for low-income families to up to 6% of their monthly income, must be improved, according to Gilman. The PUC has taken some steps already to make its process open and easy to understand, she said, but there's still much room for growth when it comes to working in a mode that engages the public on addressing long-term affordability moving forward. This is a massive issue. To take this agency and all of a sudden try to humanize, try to improve accessibility, try to improve language access, try to improve these opportunities, Gelman said. By no means do we have it all figured out. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. A whole new immersive Disney World. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. Anyone who has fallen in love with the Disney animated film knows one of the great joys of the studio's work is getting lost in the astounding worlds they have created. Now, fans of Disney can wander through many of their favorite worlds in a much more literal sense, thanks to Disney animation, immersive experience. This year is Disney's 100th anniversary, so we wanted to do something that really honored all the animators explained J. Miles Dale, an Oscar-winning producer and creative director of The Experience. What we created is a little bit educational, a little bit entertaining, and provides access to things most wouldn't be able to see. It all combines to give that magical experience people have come to expect from Disney. Created in partnership with Walt Disney Animation Studios and Lighthouse Immersive Studios, the Disney Animation Immersive Experience is on display at Lighthouse Art Space, 3900 Elati Street in Denver. As Dale explains it, a trip to the famous Disney archives provided a wealth of inspiration for the creative team as they put the exhibit together. Seeing the early pencil sketches of seminal moments like Cinderella's dress transformation was awe-inspiring for the team. It was important for us to show how these characters and worlds were created. When you see how it was made and 
who made it, you appreciate the animation more, he said. I love hearing kids who are inspired to be animator after seeing the exhibit. They feel the magic and see some of themselves in these characters. According to provided information, additional exhibit features include interactive features within the projection show that move with visitors and custom bracelets that light up and sync with the projections and specific movements. There's also the gazillion bubbles effect where 500,000 cubic feet of galleries are filled with bubbles. The cumulative effect is to give visitors an experience like visiting one of Disney's famous parks, one filled with wonder and escape. In a way, watching a movie is a passive experience, but this is very active. You are in the movies, immersed by them, Dale said. The totality of the experience makes it multi-generational. I can't really think of any other anything my mother, me, my kids, and their kids could all go to together like this. Visit lighthouseimmersive.com slash Disney slash Denver for details and tickets. Disneyimmersive.com Sadiqa Johnson brings the House of Eve to tattered cover. Sadiqa Johnson's newest book, The House of Eve, is a moving testament to an important truth. The more things change, the more they stay the same. An examination of racism and women's rights in the pre-Roe era, Johnson blends both wit and powerful humanity to remind all of us how much work there still is to do. In support of the book, which was selected as Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's February Book Club pick, Johnson will be stopping by at the Tattered Cover Colfax, 2526 East Colfax Avenue in Denver at 6 p.m. on Saturday, February 25th. She'll be speaking with L. Allison Heller, a lawyer and author. The event is free and no registration is required. Find the details at tatteredcover.com slash event. Biff celebrates power of story in 19th season. The 19th annual Boulder International Film Festival is back for another season of brilliant filmmaking, a chef competition, and much more. Running from Thursday, March 2nd through Sunday, March 5th, the festival will be screening 66 films from 20 countries with 45 filmmakers and subjects in attendance. According to provided information, the events will also feature the return of the popular adventure film Pavilion, the Cinechef food competition, and a live recording of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast with Scott Feinberg. For those who can't attend the screenings held at the Boulder Theater, 2032 14th Street, some of the films will be able to watch as part of the Biff at Home virtual program running from Monday, March 6th to Sunday, March 19th. Find the full schedule, ticket options, and more at BIFF1TheNumber1.com. And Clark's Concert of the Week, White Reaper at Summit Music Hall. My original pick here was going to be Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band at Ball Arena. But since tickets sold out pretty much instantaneously at exorbitant prices, no less, Let's instead turn our attention to another great rock band that'll be in town, Kentucky's White Reaper. 
The group specializes in the kind of indie guitar rock that has unfortunately gone out of style in the last decade or so. Thankfully, their latest album, Asking for a Ride, keeps that sonic palette going strong. In support of the album, White Reaper will be performing at Summit Music Hall, 1902 Blake Street in Denver at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, March 2nd. They'll be joined by Opener's Military Gun and Mamalarkey. Get tickets at LiveNation.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at Hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.